0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Linguin, hoping you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, but especially the joy you feel when you share God's love with others. That's what we're going to try to do with you this evening As we usually do, I'd like to begin our program with a story that is based on faith and form with imagination, kind of an introduction itself into the topic for the evening. Jesus came to his mother's side as she was still waking from sleep, crawled in between her and Joseph and said, Mother, I keep dreaming the same dream. Mary smiled at Joseph and said, "'Was it a good dream, my son?' "'I'm not sure, Mother,' Jesus answered. "'Well then, why don't you tell us about it?' Joseph said. Jesus looked up as if into the heavens and started to describe his dream as best as he could remember it. I was standing all by myself in a large house that had many, many doors and many, many windows, But all of a sudden, when I looked again, men and women and children were staring at me through the windows and doors. Then they started yelling. Mary looked with some concern at Joseph, not liking the fright in Jesus' voice and in his eyes, and asked my child, Did they say anything to you? Mother, Jesus said, they shouted, Crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus began to cry, and Mary took him into her arms and gave him all the love she could. Through his tears, Jesus said, Mother, some cried for my flesh and blood, some said they love me, and others said nothing. Mary began to weep and said softly, Remove this dream from your mind, my son. And Mary knew this dream would remain in her heart forever. With those other dreams that had already come true. And she hoped as only a mother could, when she is worried about one of her children, that this dream would not come true. A story of faith and imagination. Our guest this evening writes in his book titled, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. This book describes a wild spiritual adventure for anyone who wants to reclaim their soul from the doubts imposed by a materialistic culture and by those who insist that our minds are derived from matter and brain tissue devoid of any unique non-material spiritual substance. It is a book for those who hold on to the deep mystery of divine original mind, capital mind, M-I-N-D, in the beginning, sustaining all that exists and within us all. It is about God, love, and synchronicity, experienced in a new way, framed around an uncanny series of episodes that began with the dream and its alluring message, quote, if you save him, you too shall live. Close quote. This is a story about synchronicity, not luck. It's about perfectly timed occurrences that flow along too miraculously not to be planned by a cherishing universal mind, with which the boy felt a secure oneness. Statisticians contend that even the most improbable event will at some point eventually come to pass. That they rule out the way divine mind whispers and winks at us through synchronicities as we move in faith down the highway of life, reassuring us that the journey is meaningful after all, even when we fall for a while into some downward-sucking negative vortex of nothingness. We take the journey so that we can encounter others who are placed in our path and through whom God works. Encounters can be routine, but some are absolutely prearranged boy tend to be footloose, open minded, easily bored, irreverent, defiant, mirthful, likely to make big mistakes and embarrassing to their families. They sing songs to the open road like Whitman to celebrate feeling connected to the universe. They trust the road, come what may, They do not pretend to make their lives so much as they respond creatively to what lies unexpected over the horizon waiting to be found. They believe in an established destiny that finds them more than they find it. They know that those who make no mistakes make nothing, so they make them with a smile. They can take gambles and squander a few worldly opportunities along the way. Their journeys are as confessional as they are inspirational, and as dubious as they are certain, depending on perspective and on how they work out in the end, by their fruits you shall know them. The author of these words, they're the author of him, what they're about himself is Stephen Post, PhD. He's the best-selling author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live Longer, Happier, Healthier Life, By a simple act of giving, he's been quoted in more than 4,000 international newspapers and magazines, interpreted on several hundred radio and TV programs, the recipient of a National Endowment for the Humanities' Top Public Speaker Award. He uses a highly engaging style, as we'll hear, to inspire audiences with the best of medical and philosophical knowledge about the transformative benefits of kindness, volunteering, spirituality forgiveness, gratitude, and purpose. He founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love in 2001, named and supported by philanthropist Sir John Templeton, who personally selected Post as president. This institute teaches and distributes knowledge on kindness, giving, and spirituality. He addressed the US Congress on volunteerism and public health, and received the Congressional Certificate of Special Recognition for outstanding achievement. He served as co-chair of the United Nations Population Fund Conference on Spirituality and Global Transformation. Stephen Post, Dr. Post has has served as a full professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University, where he directs the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care and Bioethics. His book, The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, was designated, quote unquote, a medical classic of the 20th century by the British Medical Journal in 2009. He is also an elected member of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, the New York Academy of Medicine, and the Royal Society of Medicine in London. Dr. Stephen Post, welcome to Amplify. Father Ron, I am so delighted <laughs> so am I. to be with you
1: and all your audience tonight.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I'm so sure that, that you are. Um, and those words that I read were really about yourself, talking about yourself in and that dream. Tell us about the simple dream you had that felt like a premonition, that you dreamt about six times over a couple of years, and then we're going to follow the journey that came after them.
1: I will certainly be happy to do that. When I was a boy, I grew up on Long Island, and I went away to a boarding school in Concord, New Hampshire. It was an Episcopal school called St. Paul's. When I was up at St. Paul's, I had a tremendous interest in philosophy and great spiritual scriptures, When I was 15, one early morning, kind of betwixt and between sleep and wake, uh, I had a dream, which was very powerful and vibrant, and so I wondered what to do with it. And the dream uh, went as follows. I was looking down a road that was headed to the west, it was very cloudy, misty, not much visibility. And as I walked on the left, I heard a scratching sound and could see barely the contours of the face of a young man, a young guy with uh, blonde hair, kind of dirty blonde hair. And he looked like he was leaning over uh, as if to jump. And then I heard a voice from uh, a blue angel-type face. There were no wings, just the face of an angel. And in a very feminine uh, quality, uh, she said, if you save him, you too shall live at which point uh, all of the fog and the mist lifted up from the road and it was a beautiful blue sky. And that's the end of the dream. And it recurred another five times in my 15th year. I would talk with my friends in sacred studies class. Um, I had a wonderful Episcopal priest uh, Rod Wells, who was a Yale Divinity School grad, and he was intrigued by this. He was a bit of a Jungian. So um, we actually drove down to New Haven, and I talked about the dream in a class on adolescent spirituality. Uh, People asked me what it meant, and I said, well, I'm not entirely sure if it meant anything, but it felt like it meant something. Um, It encouraged me to apply to... Reed College in Portland, Oregon, where no St. Paul's boys ever applied, because I just felt I had to go west for some reason, and maybe there was a destiny out there, but I wasn't certain. Um, and um, uh, they asked me what I thought about the the idea of God, and I said, well, I read a lot of Emerson, I read about the oversoul, and I think I'm the only person up there who really believes in it, that somehow our minds are much more mysteriously connected than we really understand, and hence, you know, in the subtitle of the book, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. So that was the dream, and and we talked about it in classes, Uh, um, I... uh, was sometimes looked at very skeptically, but I don't, But I was an off a very ordinary guy, and I, you know, I wasn't having moments of dyspepsia. I hadn't been out um, raking off demerits uh, in the hot sun, uh, and so it was a very unusual thing, and it was so clear and so persistent that I thought just maybe um, it's not me simply making this up, but Somehow or another, it's this infinite mind trying to break through into my into my consciousness.
0: And you wrote a paper for uh, Reverend Rodney Wells. What really? Yes, is, I did. Yeah, what really is spiritual love? When the happiness and security of others means as much to us as our own, or sometimes even more, we love them. When any human being loves everyone who they actually do encounter in this way no matter who they are they have far transcended the limits of human emotional love and entered the spiritual love field of the infinite mind seems to me you're still exploring in some sense that independent the paper that you wrote so long ago
1: yeah that was my my sixth form they called it forms at St Paul's not uh, grade. So my senior paper with Reverend Wells, uh, uh, who, by the way, was a great friend of Alan Watts, the Buddhist yes. Episcopal priest. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I've never really moved from that perspective. Uh, human love is a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's It's one of our greatest assets, obviously. But on the other hand, um, human love is oftentimes uh, unwise. Um, you know, we overindulge our kids, for example, even though we love them. Uh, we are sometimes myopic, so we only love the nearest and the dearest, and we can be pretty callous when it comes to the neediest. Um, we have a love that uh, kind of turns on and off. It flickers in its intensity. And it can be impure. Suddenly, love can turn to anger and hostility. So human love is a great thing, but uh, there's a higher kind of love that is not dependent on human emotion or even the human substrate, but a love that literally just breaks into our consciousness. It Mm -hmm. almost feels like an invasion and it's not from us so much, really at all. But it's from it's from God. It's from Spirit. Yes. So that's a different quality of of love, and it's absolutely perfect love. And so, uh, uh, with Sir John Templeton, we call that uh, pure, unlimited love.
0: You write that uh, kids sometimes have spiritual experiences that adults can't even begin to understand. And you're right, what does it mean to be open to surprises, even though we have some control over our lives? A lot of things that happen are much more set up than we realize, but we need to notice this and listen to the whispers. And I chose the opening story I did from some 1,100 stories, Faith and Imagination, that I have to suggest that um, maybe Jesus... I had a dream, also maybe about his crucifixion. We know that Mary and Joseph seemed to have dreams to which they responded. And perhaps many more that uh, that um, we don't we don't know about. But tell us about the about the infinite mind, about the universal creative mind that you believe underlies our beautiful universe. And you referred to it already as God.
1: There is this infinite mind. One of my close friends. John Barrow just passed away last month. He was a dean at one of the Cambridge University colleges, a great mathematician, a a winner of the Templeton Prize. And he wrote a renowned book called The Anthropic Principle about how this universe was set up by a creative, loving mind that was beyond time and place, but wanted to create creatures who were free and capable of creative love that um, would make the divine life itself more meaningful and relatable so um, that infinite mind is underlying the universe It, 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 it explains the incredible harmony in thermodynamic principles uh, it's this is not an unusual idea. It goes back to Plato, and in fact, uh, all the all the Abrahamic faiths have the idea of mind before matter. That mind isn't just uh, uh, epiphenomenal. It's not just derived from matter. In fact, quite the contrary. In the beginning, there was this mind, and from that comes the universe that's set up. Uh, in such a way as to give rise to um, life forms such as our own, a treasure in earthen vessels that's capable of um, having an eternal soul.
0: And that mind, of course, is, is present within us. And um, you write about evil is the absence of the good, and it happens when we get out of spiritual touch with the infinite mind of love. We have just about a minute before our first break. But tell us a little bit about that.
1: I'm a Christian, but I also have a lot of appreciation for Hinduism and uh, the idea that that we have within us. This is also a very Christian idea, a small drop of that infinite mind. And so we are therefore not just uh, sequestered, in our, in our spiritual mind, but we can connect, we can have premonitions, we can have meaningful dreams, we can have intuitions, we can have dreams that really come into our consciousness from this higher reality. And that is uh, the other aspect of God in our lives. There's God in the, na- in the world around us, underlying the universe, and then there's also God within us, as the mystics claim.
0: As we go back, uh, the belief is, many of us, for us, that uh, the world, first of all, was a spiritual creation before man became human, before he became man. And that we've always been seeking in some way to recover that uh, Garden of Eden kind of experience that we hear about. We're going to come back and continue to talk with Dr. Stephen Post about his book, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Welcome back to Amplify, where our guest this evening is Dr. Stephen Post, talking about his book titled God and Love on Route Eighty, the hidden mystery of human connectedness, throughout the throughout the book, and there I, to me, there they are so essential uh, to our reflection on the the key um, concepts that we we should try to understand, and including synchronicity, uh, is how to follow a dream, and there are there are nine such lessons, I believe throughout the book. The first one is a boy has to feel that the dream is more than likely a calling, but that does not allow him to have absolute certainty. The second is boys who make no mistakes make nothing. Synchronicity is proof of oneness. We could talk about just these uh, parts of the book, how to follow a dream for the rest of the program, but say something about a couple of them, especially about the concept of synchronicity that uh, uh, is scattered throughout all of them.
1: Well, Father Ron, synchronicity is this beautiful idea that just like the universe is set up in a certain way, uh, our special uncanny interactions can be set up as if in answer to a prayer, um, particularly in a time of great need, but even more broadly. So we encounter that perfect person in the perfect place who has just the perfect words and the perfect gifts to, um, to bring us to a tremendous sense of oneness with God. Somehow God is working through other people and that we are much more cherished than we could possibly understand. So, you know, for me, I mean, just to, you know, catch up with the story, I, you know, I loved tutoring up at St. Paul's. I tutored French-Canadian kids in a little school across the street, uh, Millville. And I was going to tutor uh, two years later that summer in the Bronx. I was headed for Swarthmore College, And I was going to be uh, really having the time of my life. But my parents really were adamant. They did not want me in the Bronx. They thought it was much too dangerous. Maybe it was, but I didn't think so. Rod Wells had helped me get that job. So we had a pretty big argument for a couple of days. And ultimately, uh, my my mother said she wasn't going to help me with Swarthmore if if I insisted on this. And so I finally relented. And my dad, who was the president of W. and J. Sloan's Furniture Store on Fifth Avenue, he knew all of the uh, lampshade factories and furniture factories along greater New York and mostly in Philadelphia, too. And so I said, Dad, what am I going to do for a job? He said, well, you can work at Bill De Bono's lampshade factory in Patchogue, which is on the South Shore of Long Island. So I actually drove Dad's secondhand gray Mercedes 190, which had seen much better days. I drove it to the lampshade factory. It was about a half an hour drive. And I cut cardboard uh, on an assembly line, and Bill smoked his big cigars and It was really hot and humid. It was uh, summer at its worst. Uh, And after about two weeks of this, uh, I drove Dad's car out to West Hampton Beach where I had a couple of friends from St. Paul's, uh, Livy Sutro and some others. And, And about 11 at night, I said, you know, I really don't want to go to college. And I think I'm going to follow my dream I'm going to go west and see where I end up. Mm. So that night, uh, I said goodbye, and with my classical guitar, I played a lot of Villalobos and Granados um, with uh, a copy of Siddhartha and about 40 bucks in my wallet. I drove that Mercedes west on the Sunrise Highway through the Midtown Tunnel over the George Washington Bridge. I'd never driven west of that bridge before, and there were two signs. One sign said 95 South. Another sign said Route 80 West. Well, that was my dream. So I was going west. I just followed it west at about 5 or 6 in the morning. Not, not quite as far as Pittsburgh. Actually, on Route 80, near the Lewisburg exit, I had second thoughts. And I, I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to do a U-turn over the Midway and I'll get home and my reputation will be completely untarnished. However, the universe had different plans because just as I was thinking that, the generator in this Mercedes broke. And when that happened, all the energy was gone. There were no lights, there was no power, there was no engine. I just barely managed to get over onto the right shoulder. And what was I going to do? If you get out in that Lewisburg area, it's just open fields as far as the eye can see, and there's there's no telephones, there's nothing. So I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment, and in pencil I wrote a somewhat notorious note because it was became part of my family's folklore. It said, "To the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this car to Henry A. V. Post." 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, 516 669 5655, from his son, Stephen, who no longer works in the lampshade factory.
0: <laughs> yes. Right.
1: I know that was terrible. <laughs> it's incriminating. <laughs> so it's, I'm just being honest. Sure. And, you know, I was 17 at the time, and I put my thumb out. And a big white truck came along, and a guy named Gary uh, flung his door open, and he said, where are you going? And I said, "Uh, I'm going west. And he said, I can get you to Chicago. And he he did get me to Chicago, and from Chicago I did get out west. I did call my mother from a phone booth uh, outside of Lincoln, Nebraska. And I called Collective Course, and my mom said, oh, thank God you're alive. We can call off the Pinkertons. And I said, Mom, why did you call the Pinkertons? Didn't you get my note? Again, that was pretty terrible. But uh, I said, Mom, you know, you really should have let me tutor. That's what I really wanted to do. And she said, we realize that now. Where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going out to San Francisco, and I want to spend the summer with my cousin, George Lamont, who had been a Green Beret, and done a couple of tours of duty in Vietnam. and was a really interesting guy. He was a North Carolina Chapel Hill grad in Chinese studies. So um, I actually uh, got out to the Mission District of San Francisco. He lived on Chenery Street. And I spent the summer sleeping uh, on his floor. I played classical guitar in Hispanic restaurants. And I uh, also uh, fell in with a wonderful... Buddhist chanting group. I still consider myself Christian, but the Nichiren Shosho Buddhists who chant very loudly with the beads, uh a blaring Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, uh, which means something like one mind, um connectedness, uh infinite mystery. Mm. And um I loved that group, and, 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 and I had decided I was not going to college at all. I was just going to be a guitar player in the Mission District for quite a while. But lo and behold, I drew a bad draft number, and I called the people at Reed. I said, look, at, uh, I turned you all down you know, months and months ago, but I'm out here on the West Coast now, and I could really use a, a spot in your entering class <laughs> because I don't particularly want to fight in Vietnam. It's not that I'm against all war. I think there is such a thing as just war, but I had a lot of mixed feelings about this one.
0: And I want to get to um, the significant part of being in San Francisco, but just to go back a little bit to the concept of synchronicity that I've looked at kind of a relationship with what is called divine providence, that things happen for a reason. Um, And uh, there's a sense in which it, what is important that there is a reason there, not in terms of how important it may or may not be, because somehow everything is is related and that uh, it, it's proof of the oneness that uh, we are one with God indeed. And God is always working within us. The divine mind is is a part of us. And that's yeah. the way I felt that you and I got together. To eventually do this program um, you were working with a publicity company that I don't usually uh, deal with just no reason just it's, it's others that are um, closer to uh, doing all religious things spirituality and uh, there were two two men from two different companies whose first name was Zach. And I thought, isn't that weird? Too, too publicity. I've never, in my 45 years doing this program, I never, you know, and, I, and I, it, it got my attention. I think that God sometimes has a way of getting our attention, first of all, so that we pay attention to what seems unusual. And then perhaps the unusual for us is really the fact our oneness with God, we really are one with God. And so uh, even two weeks ago, we were supposed to do this program and that it didn't happen because of they were broadcasting uh, a game that night, a football game that night. And so here we are now. And so I see this moment. Uh, mm-hmm. s- some moments are rather simple and uh, don't have a seem to have much importance to them till sometimes later on. And you discover why that was. Um,
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and the, you know, Carl Jung called this uncaused causality—that somehow connections are set up by this loving, infinite mind that we are all part of, and that is really in our lives. And that's why the great moment of synchronicity for me came. Uh, I I had to go up to Oregon, and so in the early September mornings. Uh, I planned the trip and I met with my friends in front of the temple and my cousin George. Uh, they gave me a Gajon Zone, which is a scroll, a Buddhist scroll. It explained some of the meaning of these symbols. And I took the Market Street bus uh, to Golden Gate Park. It's about 7.30 or 8 in the morning. I walked across that big park and there were those reddish iron stairways onto the Golden Gate Bridge and I walked across that bridge toward the middle and it was foggy I tell you I could not see more than about three feet in front of my nose uh, and uh, there was a railing to the left of me I got to the middle of that bridge and I heard this scratching rustling type sound I squinted and I made out the contours of the face of a young man with stringy blonde hair who was leaning out off the bridge about to jump. And I said to him, very memorably, I said, I truly hope that you're not planning to jump. He was so agitated. I had invaded his sacred space, if you will, and he started screaming out at me and even quoting from Macbeth that life is empty nothingness and I said well I kind of feel that way too uh, but you're out there and I'm over here and we had a conversation I said look I think I'm here for a reason I think this was all somehow supposed to happen and I told him about the dream about seeing his face I told them about the argument at home, about Bill de Bono's factory, about the car breaking down just at the right moment so that I couldn't turn around and go back home and save my reputation. And, um, and, and I said, I think I'm here for a reason. So we spoke, and I won't go into the fine points of it because it's all in the book, but I said, look, I have, a, I have an offer for you. I pulled the Gajon Zone. Out of my backpack and I said this gives you luck if you take this cajon zone it's going to make your life turn out a lot better than you ever imagined so he didn't believe me and I unscrolled the cajon zone a bit and I explained some of the symbols on it and then I said look if you come over that railing right here next to me I'll give this to you and so he actually did he very quietly walked over the railing and he stood next to me his name was Harry I unscrolled the Gajon Zone again. I explained the symbols, and um, and I said, I'm going to give this to you. But you have to go south on this bridge toward the park, toward Golden Gate Park, and you have to take the Market Street bus. And here's a note to my cousin George, another infamous note. Dear George, this is Harry. Please let him sleep on the floor where I slept and look after him and introduce him to folks at the temple. And he actually, we shook hands. We had, we had a, he had calmed down at this point. He was not as agitated as he had been. He seemed to have taken pause. And um, I said goodbye. I went north on the bridge because I was headed toward Oregon. But as I walked north, all of that incredible heavy fog and mist Disappeared, and there was a wonderful blue sky, and it it was clear to me that somehow or another, that experience I had had with Harry was something that I had had in the dream. That was a premonition that it was set up, and it was two thousand. Understand, it was two years earlier that I had the dream mm-hmm. because I, I was 15 when I had the dream. It was 17 uh, when I was out in San Francisco. And that was 3,000 miles away. So beyond space and beyond time, somehow there was a, a profound connectedness that I could not understand. But I felt, from that point on in my life, completely transformed. I, I never doubted uh, the existence of this infinite mind of a loving, cherishing God who um, is always with us. We have to notice it. That's synchronicity. We have to notice these things we have, to, we, have to see the, we have to see those occurrences for what they are. Not everything is synchronicity, but what happened on that bridge was the most profound experience of my young life to that point.
0: And so you write about yourself. The boy's soul was changed on the bridge because he felt that his mysterious dream had come at least half true. It was the closest thing to a burning bush that a young, imaginative boy could experience. I'm just jumping around here. The boy was thankful for this moment on the bridge, and he knew that if he remembered to have gratitude, then other opportunities would come along because he was acknowledging the infinite mind. The boy had learned that blue is one of the seven quote-unquote angel colors based on seven different light rays. After his experience on the bridge that morning, never again in life, as you just said, did the boy struggle for meaning. He realized that we think we are more separate from each other than we are, and that even if we are not fully aware of it, we are connected in the mystery of a mind that ultimately holds us close despite all. Hope is being open to the surprises of graceful synchronicity that echo themes of connectedness. And then this final quote from the book, something felt incomplete to the boy. He wondered if he had really lived out the whole dream. Because while he had saved the youth on the ledge, as the dream foretold, and experienced the sweetest oneness with infinite mind as it had now surely manifested in this uncanny encounter, would he himself be saved in turn from some unforeseen perilous episode of fear and trembling? This pilgrimage did not end. At the Golden Gate, and indeed, it did not, did it? No, it didn't. No. Episode three is the biker and the premonition. You too shall live.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so Father Ron, I, I I made it up to uh, Oregon. I actually, got a ride in a farmer's truck most of the way. And um, uh, Reed College is an interesting place. I was kind of drug I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink. I was always just pretty spiritual and 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 focused on 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 prayer and such things and so um I was in the Reed College coffee shop and it was late January uh so I was a freshman there and I was sitting with friends and in burst this this guy named Andy said I'm Andy I've got a new Harley Davidson Shovelhauser bike it's the fastest one in the world and and, and who wants to go for a ride? It's about 9 o'clock at night Pacific Coast time. And I have to admit that Andy looked a little bit strange. You know, he had really uh, wild hair and a biker jacket on, and his eyes looked a little bit suspicious, lit up, if you will. But without thinking about it, I just went out with him, and I jumped on his bike, and it was slushy. It doesn't snow in Oregon, But there's a lot of rain, and it does get cold at night, and sometimes it gets pretty slippery. So he took off on this motorcycle, and he hit like 150 miles an hour in a couple of minutes. He went through every red light, every stop sign, and he went right out to the Pacific Coast Highway. Uh, The rain was pelting us in the face. He hit 180 miles an hour, and I was screaming, let me off. He was just laughing into the, into, the, into, the, into the night. And he, we, we went an hour south on the Pacific Coast Highway. Um, really, I thought I was dead. I thought it was the end of my life. I didn't see how I could survive this. We were slipping. We were going so fast. And I begged him to let me off, but he wouldn't do it. So then at last he did this kind of wild, evil-knievel turn over the midway. And he drove back to Portland again at about 180 miles an hour, and he dropped me off exactly where he had picked me up in front of the in front of the coffee shop. I was staggering. I was in tears. I I I could hardly breathe, and I walked across a lagoon on a, there's a bridge to my dormitory, which is Ackerman, was Ackerman Dormitory, and. Now, understand, it's 11 at night Pacific Coast time, so it's 2 at night East Coast time. I never answered the payphone uh, in, in, in the foyer. It's just not something that I ever did. And yet that night, as I crossed the threshold into the foyer, I, I just felt pushed. I, I didn't see anything, but I just felt somehow pressured to go pick up the phone, which I did. And I said, Hello. And it was my mom. Yes, and mom uh, had she'd woken up because she was frightened to death. She thought maybe I had died, and 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 she was in a panic. So um, uh, she said, "Are you alive?" And I said, "Yes, mom, I'm alive." And she explained her premonition, and I said, "Well, mom, that was really a true premonition because." I thought I was dead, too. I really did think I was dead, but somehow or another, I'm here and I'm alive. And, and so we talked a little bit about about one mind and about how she could have a a premonition in her sleep about me so imperiled 3,000 miles away. And uh, it was actually the basis of a pretty good relationship from that point on. She was an Irish Catholic, grew up on a potato farm in Bridgehampton, and she had a lot of mystical qualities. Um, so that was another example of the one mind, of how uh, we are so much more profoundly connected. Right. And, and it all felt so set up. It felt like somehow it had to be. And it was part of the fulfillment of the, of the dream, if you save him, you too shall live. Although I think all my life I've followed that, um, that, that truth, if you, if you save others – you too shall
0: flourish. Steve, hold the the thought because we need to take this break now, okay? Yep. Thanks.